The simplest, best advice is to keep making things. I think the most dangerous thing is to get stuck into like waiting and waiting for permission. Um, but I think there's there's so many different paths that people have taken that have worked or not worked, depending on the situation, that there's definitely not one size fits all. This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network, a hub for the creative and the curious. Shows are produced in association with Headstuff and the Podcast Studios Dublin. Find out more or become a member at headstuffpodcasts.com. Hey folks, how's it going? And welcome to this shamrock-laden edition of the industry film and TV podcast, FNI, Film Network Ireland Rap Chat. Um, I'm your host for this episode, Mia Malarkey, and you can find this episode on the following platforms, Headstuff Plus, Spotify, Google Podcasts and Apple Podcasts, and wherever you like to listen to your audio content. Um so on today's episode, we're really lucky to have Irish filmmaker, uh, writer and director Donald Foreman, who is currently living in New York City, and he has just premiered his latest feature film, The Cry of Gronuel, at DIFF. FNI Rap Chat is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network and recorded at the podcast studio in Dublin City Centre. Shoutouts to our sponsors, Wildcard Distribution and Film Equipment Store. This episode was produced and edited by Larry McGowan. So here we are in the studio and I have Donald Foreman with me. Thank you so much for coming in. How are you getting on? Good. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So we brought you in because you've just had your Dublin premiere of your most recent feature film, uh, Gronuel. The Cry Um, of Gronuel. The Cry of Gronuel. Apologies. Yeah. And gorgeous film. Do you want to do you want to tell me a little bit about it? Um, Sure. Yeah. So... um, it's a film that was funded by the Arts Council under their new authored work scheme um, that I wrote, directed and edited. And it's about, um, it's a kind of strange take on the myth and history of Grania Whale, a.k.a. Grace O'Malley. It's about an American film director who's grieving the death of her mother, who comes to Ireland to research a film about Grania Whale. And she enlists the help of a younger Irish academic to help take her around uh, the west of Ireland, around Mayo, Ackle and Clare Island, the sites associated with Grania Whale. Um, and they kind of develop a sort of um, uneasy intimacy as they're traveling around. And so it starts off as this kind of character drama of them going on this trip and um, gets progressively stranger as they get kind of deeper into the history of, of Grania Whale and, um, yeah, kind of descends into madness by the end of it. I guess <laughs> yeah. we can talk more about that. Yeah, it definitely does. I, I really liked how playful it was with form because it's very much just a straight up drama initially and you've got you're setting up your characters you're setting up that there's going to be this road trip a kind of self-discovery journey is happening but then, I don't know, is it a third of the way in or, or along the journey, you kind of start slipping and sliding into different realities and also into different kind of there's a documentary energy at times. Then there's an archival energy. There's a kind of inner and outer world of the lead character. So it's it's really playing with form. Um, so do you want to tell me a little bit about that, like why you went down that road and what like I know it's very much 
the lead character and she is almost starting to embody the character of Gronia Will by researching her and um, so what what was it that allowed you to break form and start exploring all these different mediums? Part of it was um, like I was interested in making something about Gronia Will and the thing that fascinated me more than the idea of trying to do like a an attempt at a realistic reenactment of um, speculating, you know, what the actual history was, which is a lot of it's very fuzzy. We don't have a lot of um, hard facts about her life. I was kind of got more fascinated by all the different versions of her that have been put into um, literature and poems and songs and plays and um, and even in like historical documents it's she's kind of referred to and described in these different ways so it's like there's so many different versions and ideas of who she was and you can see over time it's like each generation has kind of made her into something else into what they want her to be what's useful um to them so to me that was interesting it's like what we project onto the past how we make it mean what we want it to mean um and so it kind of naturally came out of that that the film would embody a lot of styles to kind of interpret her in different ways um and i've always liked i've always liked the idea with films that as well as having like an emotional arc a character arc that you have a stylistic arc that the style changes in some way can be subtle ways throughout the the length of the film um and I got excited at the idea of kind of taking that further where the the style and the whole way of storytelling changes completely by the end of the film. Like you're in a, a different world, a different reality, a mm. different film even. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Was there, were there reference films or some kind of inspiration in cinematic terms that you were pulling from? Um, yeah, there's lots lots of different things there was one there's this chilean filmmaker i love raul ruiz who has a very kind of surreal playful style um and deals a lot with kind of historical mythical kind of literature based stuff um and yeah there was in terms of the kind of changing from one reality to another i don't think there was a particular model although it's you know definitely other films have done that um but i like the idea of playing with kind of being inspired by different genres and it kind of factors into also it's like when you're making a film in the west of ireland there's the whole history of films both irish films hollywood films about the west and all of the painting and photography and everything and again it's like all these different versions all these different um projections on what that landscape means so i definitely looked at a lot of that and drew on some of those Mm. inspirations and landscape is a huge feature of the film it's a huge part of the storytelling and it kind of brings us back into history but it keeps us contemporary so do you want to tell me about the location and what brought you there um so yeah oftentimes films i've made have kind of started with a place before a story that i'm inspired by a particular landscape um so but this i had the idea of doing something around granuel around the filmmakers travels and so i spent time there and i guess 
I was interested. Yeah, so I I made a few trips there that then gave me a lot of inspiration for how I filmed it, and also for some of this kind of story and character. And do you want to just elements. mention where there is? Ackle and Clare Island yeah. are the main locations. Yeah, great. How was it shooting there? Um, it was great fun and very difficult and mm. very stressful at the same time. Because there's a lot of boats, right? And it's like you have to depend on the weather and. Yeah, I mean, logistically, you know, we had a crew of like 30 people. We were shooting on film on Super 16 millimeter and um, on quite a tight budget. Mm. So, you know, being out (laughs) in those locations was a bit mad. But we had a lot of support from locals, especially on Clare Island. Well, I'm a kind of half islander myself, so I was going to ask you, how are the locals? Because generally they'd always be super sound and kind of excited by something like that. Yeah, no, they were they were brilliant. Um, and uh, yeah, there's quite a few of them. We have like a pub scene in the film that quite a few of them featured. Mm, the in. dancer, is he local? He is, yeah. Yeah. His mother runs the, runs yeah, the pub. Yeah, yeah, I was wondering. Yeah. Very good. Um, so yeah, loads of logistical figuring out to do, I guess, getting so many people over. And were there, everyone stayed on the island and ate on the island. and. Yeah, we shot in Dublin for like three or four days and then... The whole shoot was 20 days, so then we had like eight days in Ackle, eight days on Clare Island. Mm. And just, I kind of jumped right into the thing you're doing right now, but normally I kind of would go back early and sort of move forward. But it's just because I just saw the film, it just premiered a diff. Um, But I might, yeah, maybe now we'll sort of jump back and kind of go to, I guess, what what were your formative years and what pulled you into film in the first place? Uh, I started making films with my friends when I was 11 and it happened very kind of casually and organically. Just a friend of mine, Danny, his dad had a camera from from the school he was teaching, just a VHS like shoulder mount, big VHS camera. And we started messing around with that. Some of that footage from my like, very first films is in The Image You Missed, my documentary mm-hmm. um, that I made before this. And... We just got obsessed and it became like every weekend we were shooting little films and it kind of progressed throughout my teenage years that I started um, watching more films, reading more about it. The films I was making with my friends got like more complex and uh, ambitious and um, started submitting films to the Fresh Film Festival in Limerick. Um, it's a f- great festival for young filmmakers. So we had that target every year. We're going to have a film screen mm-hmm. there and you get to see it in a cinema. Mm. And um, yeah, so that's how I started out. And then as I was like reading and watching more films, I think I, ha- I had, I always had kind of a good researcher's kind of attitude to things where I'd like, I got into Tarantino and I'd hear him mention Scorsese. So then I'd look up Scorsese and then Scorsese would mention Cassavetes. So then I watched those films. Cassavetes mentions the Italian neorealist. So I just go down this rabbit hole of learning more about mm. films. And so, yeah, it kind of gradually shifted from being like a fun hobby and a good way for me to socialize because I was like very awkward, shy, introverted kid to then I started developing like just real arty ideas of film as a means of expression and figuring out things. And um, then I was really hooked. <laughs> yeah. And then you studied film, didn't you? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, Dunleary IDT, National yeah. Film School. 
and then you sort of you make quite a number of shorts and you had sort of I guess you were like I, I mean shorts are there to sort of explore style and form and to meet new collaborators and um, what was that journey like before the first feature film came about and after college um, yes yeah, so up until I went to film school all the films I'd made had been comedies with my friends because that's what what came naturally to them it's what was kind of fun and easy to do but I had all these ambitions to do drama and to do more experimental things um, so film school kind of gave me the pa- the space to start like exploring that um, and I did a few shorts during college and then for about three years afterwards I mostly focused on doing shorts and a big part of that for me was learning about how to work with actors which on the course I did there wasn't a lot of focus on that so every time I made a short I would do a lot of auditions and I would do auditions where I'd get them to improvise scenes and I'd pair two actors and just use it as kind of more school for myself to like learn how to work with actors and then I would do rehearsals for the films and I also I was like, I had some ideas where I was struggling to find a, find a way. I had an idea, but I felt I couldn't write a script. Like, I wanted to make a film about a character, but I didn't really know that character well enough to fill them out totally. So I made some shorts where I was like, oh, I know someone who's kind of like that character. I can make the film with them and improvise scenes and write a script based on that. And I tried, like probably five or six shorts where each one was like a different version of not working from a finished script um and so I learned a lot about ways that I like to work that Mm. way and then at the end of that then I was kind of feeling ready to do a feature and then I started trying to get out of here together yeah and I feel like you've probably taken a lot of that sensibility into your feature work like there's improvisation there's a kind of observational atmosphere there's a feeling that you've given a certain amount of freedom to the people to mm. sort of create with you rather than like, here's a perfect finished script, now perform. Mm-hmm. Um, so then, yeah, so then you got your first feature. Mm-hmm. Um, so tell me about that. First of all, I guess, in terms of like, who did you go to for funding and what was your kind of ambition with that, you know, this idea of it being the first feature. And So tell me a bit about that. Um, so I'd had that idea since I was in college and I had, I'd written one version of the script that wasn't very good, but I kind of worked out a treatment that was like 30 pages that I liked. And then after doing those shorts, I was like, I want to do this the same way. I want to cast it and work with the actors and flesh out the script that way. Um, and I knew that was going to be a hard sell in terms of the funding options at the time, but I was able to get meetings with a lot of production companies in Dublin and kind of pitch the idea. Um, and I must have done that with like about eight different mm-hmm. companies. And how did they react to it? Because it's, it's a dangerous approach for a first film, you know? If you'd done two or three features with that style, it'd be like, oh, that's what he does. We know that it's good. And I mean, I guess your shorts would have been important as a calling card. Yeah, a little bit, but. Definitely not enough because they Mm. all said no. Um, (laughs) So I think 
part of it was, yeah, it was kind of, you know, did I have the track records to pull this off? And also because the nature of the story was very, um, very episodic and character driven and there wasn't a big character arc or revelation. It was all very subtle and about mood. And so, you know, out of here is about this um, guy who like dropped out of college, traveled the world for a year and then he comes back to Dublin and it's his first week back in town and he's struggling to kind of reconnect and fit back in um so it's just about like the experience of what that feels like and how you kind of relate to the city differently and perceive things differently um so I remember I w- there was a script workshop thing I got to do like a bit before um, making out of here where I met Jim Sheridan mm-hmm. and I pitched it to him and he just shook his head and he was like <laughs> <laughs> he was like good luck that's a that's a tough sell yeah yeah because I mean the, the reason it's beautiful and the reason it works is because it has that atmosphere and because it's allowed to explore and it doesn't have this like right here's the narrative we've got a really clear arc that we have to hit this climactic point in the third act it's like as you say it's episodic and it's very internal, even though it's all it's a sequence of events. So there's plenty happening, but you're very much in the mind of the protagonist. And as he tries to work it out, you, the audience, are also trying to work it out with him. And he almost doesn't have a lot to say a lot of the time. He's kind of taking it in rather than creating the world. So as a yeah, as a pitch, it's sort of difficult, I imagine. So that's funny. Yeah, I can. But then that's not his cup of tea at all, Jim Sheridan. <laughs> He's like completely the opposite. Um, but yeah, and I suppose it's like, it's like the definition of, you know, what they call execution dependent, that there's, there isn't the kind of the hooks or the like big narrative tension that you think like, oh, even if the director fucks it up a bit, it'll be like, Mm. people still want to know what happens next. It's Mm. like, you kind of really have to get the tone and the performances right, because that's, that's what it's all about. Um, so, so yeah, um, you know, the companies I went to were like uh, very kind of nice and open and like giving me the time to um, talk it through. And there was um, one company where they were like a bit more interested and they c- were kind of talking to me about it for a while. They wanted me to do a short with them first. So I wrote a script for a short. Then they didn't like that. Mm-hmm. And then it just kind of stalled. But the producer that I ended up making out of her with was uh, Emmett Fleming, who was working at that company. And he ended up leaving that company. And he, um, I ended up getting in touch with him again because someone else had recommended him. Um, and he was, now he was an independent producer and he was like, I'd love to do it. And he was excited about it. So we started working on it and we figured out a kind of crowdfunding strategy, which is how we funded the shoot, um, which was like, I think it was like 25,000 euro or something. Which is incredible <laughs> um, for what you achieved. Yeah. So we we did a crowdfunding campaign and started preparing it that way. And yeah, I'm amazed myself looking back at it. I don't know how we did that for so little money. But, yeah, um, it's a huge feat. I mean, it looks beautiful. Like it's got like it's Piers McGrail who shot it, isn't it? Yeah. 
I just it looks really cinematic. It looks beautifully lit. It looks like there was a huge team behind it. It doesn't feel like twenty five thousand. Like so, that's amazing. Yeah, and I suppose that was the other part of it that was a hard sell for a low budget is because I'd heard people say like even if you were going for like making something for a hundred grand at that time, it better just be like three people in a house, mm. you know, because if you're um, doing things to a certain standard and um, with a certain kind of crew structure and stuff, then that's all you're going to get away with. Um, Whereas you've got numerous parties. <laughs> there's like, it's like back-to-back parties with <laughs> loads of people. It's like six massive crowd scenes. Yeah. It's like dozens of different locations. Mm. There must be a few dozen like speaking parts. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it's a real guerrilla approach in a way. Like, I presume you didn't have the money to be, right, we'll get all the permits in place and we'll we'll do loads of rehearsals in this venue and in this venue. And, you know, it was like, right, we've got the venue. Let's get in there and, and get what we need. Yeah. Or sometimes like you you start shooting at the venue and they're like, oh, they want us out in an hour instead yeah, of four yeah. hours. So <laughs> uh, pick your five favorite shots and Mm. let's just get those done yeah yeah yeah. it's a real guerrilla shooting I think this is really encouraging for people to hear who haven't done a first feature or they're just starting out in shorts that you know with the will you can do a lot for a little I mean it's still really incredible that it was 25k for what was achieved Um, but you know there's pressure that you need to get in with Screen Ireland and BAI and, and all the key funders for your first feature drama or whatever and that you need to have a certain budget and but you can definitely do a huge amount with willpower and good allies good collaborators because mm-hmm. I presume all your HODs were just being really sound and, and everybody was pouring in as much as they could yeah um, yeah no people really kind of went above and beyond for it um, and it was also you know like a lot of people a lot of the crew were people who were learning as well, who hadn't yeah. stepped into that um, role before. So um, it was, we were all learning on the job as well. Mm, that's great. Um, but yeah, I think also like growing up, I'd had the privilege of kind of getting to know a lot of older filmmakers through um, my mom, who wasn't in the film industry, but she um, just happened to know a lot of filmmakers in Dublin and used to take me to the Galway Film Flat um, a bunch of times. So um, I'd gotten to know a lot of filmmakers and I'd um, I'd seen a lot of stories of people who just got stalled in development for big stretches of their career, like 10 years just trying to get one project off the ground. Um, and I knew I didn't want, I didn't want that to happen to me and I wanted to just I get I was inspired as well at the time by like a lot of American independent film I thought it was interesting that they've like kind of less funding opportunities they don't have the state film funding and yes they were being more much more prolific than a lot of Irish mm-hmm. filmmakers um so I was inspired by that kind of DIY attitude as yeah, well yeah 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 there's a lot to be said for not waiting for permission and not sort of accepting the gatekeepers as the final say on what you're trying to create. Um, I've done two crowdfunding campaigns and the first one was definitely 
I, I kind of it, it allowed me into the funding world because it's like look I actually made something really good all by myself and it's on the festival circuit and it's got a few awards so I know what I'm doing and I know how to pull people together And but the, I, I didn't get funding initially so like with your first feature it's like you're kind of proving yourself almost yeah so. and I also noticed with the reaction to that that a feature immediately gets people's attention more than a mm. short um, that it just um, has a bigger impact and I mean unfairly to an extent because I think there's great filmmakers who've made a career of just doing shorts and it's totally valid form in itself but just even when you say it to someone it doesn't matter what what it is they're like oh you know it mm. kind of um, yeah and uh, and in terms of festivals and stuff you just get you get treated better yeah, a lot yeah. of the time. Well, they might actually pay for your flight and pay for mm, your hotel. And, yeah. Yeah, exactly. You might even get a fee for the screening. Or, um, So you did this. And then I feel like you did this radical shift into this really beautiful documentary essay, which was really, really, really different to your first feature. So your mm. follow-up feature, like why wh- did, did you anticipate that you would have this massive shift or did it just come about organically? Not initially so um like i'd always had some interest in doing things that were kind of more experimental and documentary in nature and i actually right when i got out of college i was shortlisted for the the arts council real arts awards with this feature doc about dance um who's centered around uh, john scott and irish modern dance oh, theater oh yeah he's brilliant um, who I'd worked for, like filming their dance shows, and that was so we got shortlisted, and that was felt kind of close to happening, and that would have t- taken me in, you know, mm. another um, direction, but that didn't happen. So there's there was always that kind of interest, but after out of here, I was very much thinking like I want to do another um, narrative, and also we had gotten um, completion funding from the film board to do the post-production on Out of Here. Great. um, Which was like another 15 grand, I think. Mm. And so that had kind of got my foot in the door with them. And so then I had an idea. I'd been living in New York at this stage. I moved to New York like a year before I made Out of Here. And um, I had this idea for a script set around anarchist activists in New York but with a kind of central Irish character um so then I got um I got like a first draft development loan from the film board to write that script so that's really what I was wanting to do next and it was kind of it was a bit more it had a bit more kind of narrative stakes it was a bit more overtly um, dramatic mm. had a few more kind of genre elements but was still very um, kind of complex character driven thing um, but that ended up that was kind of my little taste of development hell just for I guess two or three years after out of here I was like working on drafts of that the film board ended up um, not being into it, they like rejected it for for any further development. Mm. I couldn't. Um, I was working with um, 
Ahmed who produced Out of Here, but then he decided he didn't want, he kind of preferred being a line producer rather than the kind of full development producer. So he stepped away. So then I didn't have film board support. I didn't have a producer. Um, I did the rounds of like pitching it to companies both in Dublin and in New York. Um, and it was just kind of going nowhere. Mm. So it was kind of, it was a, v- a kind of very valuable learning experience because I learned a lot about what people were looking for or what was, what were the things that could have got it going because the reaction I was getting, the re- I had some producers who loved the script and were giving me all this praise on it and then they just said, come back to me when something's happening. You know, mm, okay. when like, when you have some funding in place or you have another producer or you have an actor attached mm. or um, because you know, them for them, just loving a script wasn't enough for them to dedicate themselves. It's when, still a gamble, I guess, isn't it? Yeah. Mm. Um, whereas if they see something, they see the wheels are already turning, mm-hmm. then they're like, oh. There's momentum here. I can jump in. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, um, so around the time that that was just kind of stalling, I had figured out this idea for the for the image you missed. Um, and my father had died in 2008, right when I finished college. And um, in the in the following year, I'd gotten a sort through his apartment in Paris and I found all this archival material. That's the basis of the film. Um, so I had shot some things at that time that ended up in the film, but I didn't know. I just thought I'm going to film this. Maybe it'll be useful down the road. And then it was like around 2014, 2015, I, I kind of, I had figured out a concept, I thought, of how I could approach it. And for me, it was a perfect opportunity to get more into documentary and experimental and also engage with political ideas around film, because I'd also been writing a lot as a film critic throughout this time. And um, since I was in college, I was already, re- always really interested in like, uh, film essays and um, political filmmaking and Chris Marker and Godard and all this mm. kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. I thought this is the perfect opportunity for me to kind of play around with, with some of those ideas and techniques. And then I applied to the Arts Council and got Arts Council Project Award to do that. So, um, so and it was something, it was unlike anything I'd done before, so it was a real learning curve just working with archival and voiceovers and and being autobiographical, like t- mm-hmm. actually having a talk about myself mm-hmm. and my own life, which all my films had been personal, but like veiled in fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, so I didn't have the safety of that with this. So, yeah, it was a really interesting challenge. Yeah, I, I saw it at its premiere in Diff th- three years ago. Is that right? Two, three, four, four. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Jeepers, I'm in a time. There's up. one year there that doesn't count. Uh, yeah, that's true. Okay, 2020 is out the window. Um, I was blown away by that film. I thought it was stunning, and also because I'd seen a lot of your shorts, I knew your work, and it was such a, a leap in a new direction. And I knew um, you were a bit of an essayist, and that you did a lot of writing and stuff. So I could see all these strands of who you were coming together in this amazing way. Um, it's a beautiful film. The music is gorgeous. The editing is really kind of rich and multi-layered. Um, there's so many st- kind of storylines and, and emotions woven in this really smart way with the cutting, which I really loved. 
Um, and then, as you say, it's personal, but without any kind of fiction to mask that personal. So, yeah, which is, I guess, scary. It's a little bit sort of raw or, you know, you have to then talk about it to everybody over and over. Um, so what was that journey? Because you, you kind of cut it yourself, didn't you? Yeah, I've always been my own editor. Um, but this was kind of another level because the whole film pretty much was editing. Um, and I didn't have, I didn't have a crew. I didn't have a producer. I was like the whole team on it pretty mm. much until I got to the final stages of post-production. And then I worked with like sound designer and colorist and everything. But up until that, I was, I was the whole film team. Um, so yeah. And in terms of the kind of the personal material, I've kind of fought against it for a long while because I had the attitude that it's like, I'm not really the interesting part. The interesting part is is the material and the kind of um, the story of my father and, and what he did. And my first idea for the voiceover was that it would be two fictional characters talking about this father and son who made films and going through the material. And it took me about, I edited for almost two years and it was probably about a year and a half before I realized I was like bending over backwards mm. just not to have a voiceover where I was saying I thought mm. this and I did that because whenever I tried to do that I just cringed I was like <laughs> oh no one wants to know like what I think mm. you know um, but it ended up yeah I ended up finding a way that I liked where I had my voice and my father's voice that was kind of recreated from things he'd written and letters and the voiceovers of his films. And um, so then I was able to kind of bounce between us and my voiceovers like addressed to him. Yes. So it was so much more effective to be like, I'm saying, I'm saying I did this and you thought that. And it kind of puts, puts the viewer in the middle of it rather than he and he and yeah, you know yeah well it, it brings the two the father and son to life it feels very immediate because now you're in the space with the two of their voices almost having this conversation throughout the film you know and the title is perfect because actually that's the tension across the whole film the image you missed you know he spent a lifetime capturing images studying images creating images but this one central image of his son was the one that he didn't attend to so that's the that's the emotional hook throughout the film. So then you can kind of weave in numerous directions, but you keep coming back to this emotion. So it was beautifully constructed. But yeah, it's interesting that you started out with two kind of fictionalized, he did this and he did this voices, but you eventually stripped that back to actually, it's just I and my dad. So Yeah, and it's sort of like, I would never choose to be so personally revealing in a film, but it was like, I was trying to make the best film. So the film kind of forced me Mm. into it and it um yeah and then I did think I did still think of like I think of those voices as kind of characters in mm -hmm. a way mm -hmm. that my point of view is more the film as a whole and in the editing because I really tried to like it wasn't a film where I kind of wrote a plan and then edited I was really I was going through the f his footage and I was like oh that shot reminds me of this thing that I shot or it this idea and then I would cut those together mm. so I was really kind of thinking and figuring it out through the process of yeah. of editing it 
And then I was able to play around with the voiceovers. And sometimes it's like, sometimes I'm kind of slipping some of my ideas into his voiceover. Sometimes I'm being a bit simplistic about what I thought because it's a better, mm -hmm. makes for a better argument with him, you know. Mm -hmm. um, so it had, there was kind of that that element that reminded me of, of doing fiction as well. Mm, yeah, that's great. And then, um, and then I guess once that was out in the world, you sort of started going back towards drama. So we've, and we've kind of covered the cry of Gronuel. Um, so now what I'd love to ask you is now that you've done those three really, really different features, because the first one is very much a straight up drama in the sense that you've got a protagonist and you go on a kind of cinematic, episodic journey. The second one then is this um, documentary essay that's very personal. And then the third one is like a hybrid of form. So you've got some straight up drama elements, then you've got this kind of very, you know, magic realism where we jump back in time and there's kind of archival elements. And, and so I would just say on that, like making the image you missed definitely kind of opened things up Mm. So I don't think I could have made The Cry of Grania Whale before it because I felt like I had all these new tools to play around with. So I thought of with The Cry of Grania Whale that it would have these almost kind of documentary or essay elements that are kind of slipping in. That's part of the stylistic mix along with like fantasy and yeah. silent film and other mad things. Yeah, yeah. Well, this is kind of what I wanted to ask you because I feel like you're allowing yourself to explore a lot of voices and a lot of, you know, cinematic forms and mediums. So, and, and I, I presume this is informing your voice as a writer-director and kind of how would you encapsulate that or what have you extracted from that? Like what permissions have you given yourself or what, where do you envision yourself going? Oh, there's a lot of answers <laughs> to that. I mean, one thing that I'm really interested in at the moment is working working with other writers because I think I'm kind of like, I'm someone who writes for myself to film it, to visualize it. It's like, it's kind of a, a first step of the filmmaking process rather than a, a writer who writes just to write, you mm. know? Um, and I think I have a lot more range and potential as a director than as a writer. There's like certain things. I'm also very slow. I'm like, I need to kind of daydream about something for a year and then take notes for a year. And then, it, you know, it kind of comes together. But there's so many other kinds of films that I'd be interested in making that I don't think I could write or develop or also wouldn't lend themselves to the same degree of the kind of uh, improv rehearsal process, which which I did on The Cry of Granuel as well, by the way, although it was a bit different because the characters and world are so specific. Um, there wasn't the same, I wasn't asking the actors to like invent their own dialogue as much, but I was able to um, kind of come in with scenes and try it out on them immediately and go home and rewrite and have that kind of collaboration in the writing which which I really like but yeah we're, I'd love to work with other writers and play around with um, different genres and kind of step a little bit more into um, into like a na narrative genre space mm -hmm. um, that's something I'd like to do I think um 
doing kind of little weird documentary essay films i feel like that's something i'd always like to come back to mm -hmm. um the thing that i'm working on at the moment is another arts council project that is a little documentary essay thing um this time uh set in new york that i can do mostly by myself and it's like it feels like a little kind of breather project after the um all of the intense uh just logistical and collaborative you know and madness of of uh the granny whale film um and then i think i'm still trying to figure out like what what process of making films is actually going to give me the most joy in life because that was part of what led me to like working with improvisation and stuff was that i was like oh this is this is so much more fun than just me like writing and rewriting a script by myself for three years, you know, mm -hmm. to actually be in a room with actors and playing around. Um, and I feel that's important that, you know, you find ways of doing this that actually like enrich your life and you feel good about it. Mm -hmm. um, but I haven't quite done that. I mean, because I think with the cry of Grania whale a lot of it was so stressful because of the ambition and scale for the budget that we had and are you happy to share what the budget was and what the fund was um authored works it's like um it's like low six figures mm. yeah um and it's i mean it's it's a really brilliant scheme that I'm so impressed that they're doing because for me, I think when I was coming out of college, I felt like, oh, I'm kind of, I'm really stuck between a rock and a hard place because I felt I wasn't experimental enough for the Arts Council and I wasn't traditional enough for the film board that the kinds of like, just sort of art house, um, art house, like visually driven cinema that I was into seemed like, neither mm. one nor the other um and authored works is like that you know the perfect, the perfect thing for that mm. um in between um so so that was great but like i think having to work having to pull off what we did meant fitting into certain traditional structures of like how a film is planned and made that I'm like I don't know if I I don't know if I really like this structure or I don't know if this structure if I like this when you don't really have the money to back it up you mm -hmm. know like um so yeah I'm still kind of figuring that out like what is the best way to do this and I've after out of here I felt like okay, I, I either need to scale it up or scale it down because trying to do what we did on that tiny budget, like you can't you can't do that again and again. You'll kill yourself. Uh, yeah, and um, there's too many favors involved. Yeah, yeah. You can't keep going back to that well mm. and asking that of um, people. So I was like, either I need to do like just five-person crew, three people in a room, or someone give me a million euro, please. <laughs> um I presume you're aiming for the million and not the five percent. Um, Are you still open to? I would, yeah. I mean, I would kind of. 
I'd, I'd be interested in, in trying to do narrative work in a very scaled down cheap way. Like I, um, I really love filmmakers like Eric Romare, the French new wave director, a lot of his work, especially in the eighties where he did it in a really run and gun simple style. And he did just have a five person crew and, um, shot with available light. Um, and also someone like, um, Hong Sang Soo, the, um, Korean director who all his films are so cheap and simple and he makes like two or three a year. He writes his script the morning that they're shooting. <laughs> and just he's just like set the locations and mm-hmm. goes in. I mean, that sounds really stressful. I don't know how he does that. But he, ha- he makes his films in a very kind of simple economic way mm. that I admire. But I also have like big budget outlandish ideas. So. Mm-hmm. The big sci-fi in space kind of thing. There needs to be an Irish sci-fi. Yeah, yeah, I think so too. I, I'll, yeah, I'll work on one. You work on one. We'll get a few out there. <laughs> um, and yeah, I guess to to kind of finish off and and find a nice way out of our conversation, I'd love to get your thoughts on or or what you would say to up and coming filmmakers, um, in terms of because I feel like you've allowed yourself to really dip your toe into a lot of different styles and formats and you've worked with a lot of different budgets from nothing to the most recent one um so for for people who are sort of early and and still exploring and maybe it's all a little bit uh big and bamboozling what would you kind of offer or suggest (coughs) get that cough out of the way um i think like the simplest best advice is to keep making things i think um it's the most dangerous thing is to get stuck into like waiting and waiting for permission um but i think there's there's so many different paths that people have taken that have worked or not worked depending on the situation that there's definitely not one size fits all but i think um even if you have the kind of big long-term project that's going to take years i to kind of pull together to have other things smaller things that you can make in the meantime um to find ways to keep practicing and building your skills and discovering new ideas i think that's um really important I think one thing I was always had a good knack for that I think helped me out was I I was although I was kind of a shy person I was very forward about asking people for advice and from when I was in college I would just like find f- like filmmakers I liked I'd find their email online or their social media and I just send them a message and say like what camera did you use? How many days? How did you make that film? Like, what should I do? You know, this kind of thing. And um, I struck up like a lot of correspondences with different, I mean, obviously it's like independent filmmakers. Scorsese isn't going to write back to you. But, um, and especially in the Irish context, everyone's so approachable and accessible for the most part. Um, I'm very kind of generous with their advice. I found that, not being afraid to do that because I've also met people who like 
been struggling away for a long time and have never thought or they'd feel they'd be imposing to kind of just ring someone up. Mm. Um, but I think being willing to reach out and be nice about it, not be kind of feel that you're owed anything from people. But I've learned a lot um, from that, I think. And being willing to do that for other people as well. Yeah. Mm. I think that's great. I think that's actually really important. And I know the feeling of, oh, but, you know, I'm nobody and I shouldn't contact this person who's great and I'm imposing on them. Or um, It's actually because uh, once I figured out what you're just talking about, I've had these wonderful conversations with directors or even with, you know, gatekeepers, programmers or funders as well. It's like, actually, I'll just ask them, you know, what do I need to do to my application form? Or I'm going to ask this director, you know, how should I get this ending? I'm a bit lost in this storyline or something, whatever it might be. People are incredibly generous because it's like you're one of them mm. and they kind of know the feeling. They know the journey. So and yeah, as you say, then when it comes to your time and people reach out to you, it's like, oh, well, you're, you're passing it on because you've been fortunate and people reach their hand down to you so you can keep the same chain, you know. Mm-hmm. So I think that's really lovely advice, actually, for people who are sort of figuring it out and are still early on. Um, so I think that's a lovely note to end on. So thank you so much for coming in. Thank you. And for sharing. Great. Cheers. FNI Rap Chat is part of the Head Stuff Podcast Network and recorded at the podcast studio in Dublin City Centre. Shoutouts to our sponsors, Wildcard Distribution and Film Equipment Store. This episode was produced and edited by Larry McGowan. See you next time on Rap Chat. And before we go, here's another show we recommend that is part of the Head Stuff Podcast Network. Hello, my name is Stephanie Preisner and I'm here to tell you about my show, Basically. It's all in the name, really. The show makes things basic for people. We've done episodes about world religions. We've done episodes about COVID. We've done episodes, a lot of episodes about mental health and different aspects of mental health to make things accessible to people. One of the great things about the podcast is that you can contact me and let me know what topics you would like. So have a listen, see if anything tickles your fancy. And if there's something there that you think is missing... Please get in touch with the show. We'll cover the topic and then you can listen to it. We're part of the Headstuff Podcast Network, so you can find us on headstuffpodcast.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. See you soon.